We are Crossroads Grace Church. Our purpose is to lead people to discover Jesus and follow Him fully. This week's message is taught by our teaching pastor, Brian Hunt. From wherever you're listening, we hope that you are challenged and encouraged by this week's message. I'm so proud to be part of a church that's willing to do that for our community and to love them. Man, I just, I just am so excited for that. So uh, if nothing else, if you don't volunteer, would you be praying for that event? I just know that God's going to do some great things through that. And again, proud to be a part of a church that's willing to love those around us. So man, just grateful. Hey, glad that you're here. My name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here. And just pumped that you're with us today. As we continue in this series, it's called Discover. And it's birthed out of our mission statement, which is this, that we want to lead people to discover Jesus and follow him fully. Uh, that's why we exist. If there's anything that we can do to help you take those steps, that's why we are here. Uh, but we use that, that uh, mission statement purposely around this series because we, we realize that we believe that before somebody can follow Jesus, they need the right and the time to be able to discover who he is first. If we don't get that order right, if we don't discover Jesus and then follow him fully, it could really take on the equivalent of, of shoving a bag over somebody's head and throwing them in the Jesus bus and then driving away. Right? That, they would technically be following, but they really would never have discovered Jesus. There's a chance that I've watched too many Netflix spy movies recently for that analogy to work, but I, I think that you get what I'm saying. Because a lot of us feel like following God is where he drags us behind him. But the reality is, is that's not what God wants at all. In fact, God would tell us that he would want us to follow him. And we ultimately will follow what we discover on our own or that we've seen modeled for us. I've told you time and time again that my favorite baseball team and football team is the, is the Red Cincinnati Reds and the Cincinnati Bengals. I know there's at least one person in here that would give me a whoop right now. Anybody? That's my man right there, right? The only other person right there, okay? Now, you're probably wondering, why in the world do you root for those people? And when I grew up in South Dakota, they would tell me the same thing. They're like, dude, you're in South Dakota. Why do you care about the Bengals and the Reds? And I would tell them it's because my mom loved them. And she would watch them. And I wanted to eat. That is why I would root for them, okay? That was the bottom line in our home, okay? But we would go to Cincinnati every summer, and we would spend a couple of weeks there, and we were guaranteed at least two, maybe three Reds games when we were there. And we would walk into Riverfront Stadium, and I would watch Barry Larkin and Chris Sabo and Eric Davis and the Nasty Boys with Rob Dibble, Norm Charlton, and Randy Myers. Woo! I would watch them, and I would say, oh, I love them. I love to follow them. And they were part of the reason that I grew up to love baseball. But had my mom not given me the chance to discover the Reds for myself, who knows what would have happened. I could have ended up a Dodger fan. Like, this is scary stuff, okay? <laughs> scary stuff that could have happened, but it didn't. Praise Jesus, okay? The point is, is that we discover what we're given the chance to watch and to learn about. And to vet for ourselves. We're able to discover who Jesus is before we were expected to follow him. And so if you're here today and you're just window shopping faith, you're not really sure what's happening. You're looking in the windows. Maybe you're here and you just kind of, you, you were scrolling through life and you clicked on this guy named Jesus. Maybe you're here today, you're at the end of your rope. You're really not sure what's going to happen. And so you say, you know what, I got nothing less to lose. Let's just find out about this God thing. 
I just want you to know one thing. You're in a great place. You're, you're in a great place. You have permission to look around, to discover for yourself. We have this saying that we say all the time around here. We just say, hey, come as you are. You, you don't have to be something that you're not. You don't have to dress up fancy so that God thinks that you're a cleaned up version of yourself. No, just come as you are. Wear some clothes, but come <laughs> as you are. You know, come and discover and find out what's happening. Because there isn't just one way to discover Jesus. And as we've kind of looked, there's several different ways, even, I would say, even a pattern that happens when you discover Jesus. And to understand that, what we've been doing is using a story found in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3 is what we're going to be at if you want to get there in a second. And the story that we've been looking at is a man by the name of Nicodemus. And let me catch everybody up to speed so we're on the same page today. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, which meant that he was a religious leader. Super powerful leader. He was in charge of a lot of stuff. In fact, he was on the Sanhedrin, which was the highest ruling council in the Jewish, in Jewish religion. They, they handled civil things and criminal things. He was really, really important. Except what happened when one day Nick um, decided that he was going to, to, to talk to Jesus himself in the middle of the night, we read last week. You might even say that it was Nick at night. Ah, my Nickelodeon people in the house, right? Nick at night, woo! A little I Love Lucy marathon didn't hurt anybody, okay? So Nick at night. But under the cover of night, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And he approaches him with a confession. And the confession was, is that he had been watching Jesus. He'd been watching him heal and teach and debate and love and and, and do all kinds of things. He had, he had been up close and personal because he was part of this group, the Pharisees, that would follow Jesus all around. And so he had experienced things that he had never seen before. Jesus was doing things unlike anything ever before, which is why he was here in the first place. That's why he was there. He had begun the process of discovering by watching Jesus. And so it, this is the first part of really discovering Jesus is that we want to, we want to watch him. Right? We want to watch him a little bit. And he had done that by looking. He'd been looking. And he'd been watching Jesus. And we learned last week that that's the first part of what we do when we discover Jesus. We, we watch before we do. And so that's what Nicodemus had been doing. He'd been watching. Now, the second part, though, is really interesting, which we'll cover today. We go from watching, though we went from watching, and now today we're going to go to, to questions. Some curiosity about Jesus. Some wonderings about Jesus. And there are all kinds of people in the world that are, are, are inquisitive. You might even be that type of person today. You have questions, you're curious. Some of the most brilliant minds in all of our world were curious. Not just about one thing, but usually about multiple things. Take, for instance, Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci, and you might know him as a famous painter and artist. He was the one that painted The, the Last Supper. He also painted the Mona Lisa. But he had a, a broader uh, interest level than just painting. And it was, it was said that his library contained over 116 books. Now, in our day and age, it doesn't seem like a lot. But back in the day, that was a lot of books for one guy to have. But those titles and the things that those covered in that library were things like anatomy and medicine and natural history and arithmetic and geometry and astronomy and philosophy and language and literary works and religion. He, he read about it all. He was interested. He was curious about it all. And he would write down these, these musings that he had in these journals things in geometry and mathematics, even in the human body. And what historians have found is that they estimate he's created between 20,000 and 28,000 pages of handwritten notes. 
sketches as he was kind of wrestling with things and, and wondering about things. But the interesting thing about these journals is that if you look at them closely, the words that are written are, are written upside down and backwards. So that the only way that you could read them is to hold it up to a mirror. So even as he was being curious, he was causing other people to be curious about what he wrote. Curiosity was everything. It was everywhere he was at. But there was one quote that I found that I think summed up his, his approach to everything. And it was this. That nothing can be loved or hated unless it is first understood. Now, that's interesting to think about. That nothing, nothing can be loved or hated until you understand what it's all about. And the way that you understand things, whether you're going to love them or hate them, is by what? Asking questions. About being curious. It's through the whys that we all wonder about, but we seldom say. And, and most of the time, the best questions, they're from kids, aren't they? Man, they can ask some questions. Woo! I mean, I don't know what it is. Some of the best questions come from kids as they're trying to understand. They have a different perspective on things. I, I found this video, actually, that, uh, the study that they did about kids, which I thought was kind of fun. Take a look. By 312 questions. That's a lot. And, and maybe it's because of their point of view in life that they're just one. Who, who knows what it might be. But I know my son Easton, he would knock 312 questions out in like a morning. Like right before breakfast he would do that. He asks just the strangest things sometimes. And he asks them in a weird way too. He'll say things like, Dad, what is your third favorite food? What? Right? What is your second worst princess? What? What is your fourth worst football team that you like? And you're like, what are you, like, it's like trying to recite the alphabet backwards. You're like, I don't even know what's happening right now. And, and although he gives me a migraine sometimes, I, I love his curiosity. But research also tells us that by the age of four, the amount of questions that we ask in our curiosities plummets on a daily basis. We stop being curious. And as your kids get older, and maybe as you get older, isn't there just a part of you that just wishes they would ask some questions again. That you, you could just say fire away and they would just ask and ask. Because you miss those times of curiosity and just wondering. However, curiosity is also a crit critical aspect to our growth as Christians. I, I would go so far as to say that if we aren't asking questions about our faith, I believe our faith is declining. Let's think about that for a second. If we aren't asking questions, if we aren't actively pursuing God, if we aren't wondering a little bit, I believe that our our faith is declining. And if you're here today and you've walked away from God, or, or maybe you're not sure about God, you might have grown up with this perception that uh, you're supposed to just believe because someone told you. You just be quiet and believe. There are no questions. You were told that questions were a sign of uh, maybe an evidence of doubt, that, that you were off base somehow. And, and you might feel that because of all those things that you were you were told that, that you can't really surface the things that are really in your heart and soul. That it's not okay to ask those. I'll just tell you something right away. I ask questions all the time. There are things that I find in scripture that are confusing and they will stretch my faith. But I've come to, to over the years of following Jesus to know that he's not freaked out by my questions. He's actually okay. Jesus was really okay with questions. People would ask him questions all the time in his ministry. And he never ridiculed them. He never made them feel bad about themselves. Kind of why I like Jesus so much. Because like I said, I, I read this Bible all the time. And I'll bump into things and I'll say, what? what? Like, he created the whole world in seven days? Like, come on. Like, really? 
like Noah, and there was an ark, and it flooded, and he put the animals on there. Like, come on, really? I mean, he walked on water. Come on. Like, you know, there's just things that defy logic and physics. And then you're like, oh, my goodness, what is that? They're outside of common sense. So, so if we don't ask questions about those things, about God, I'm not sure if we're accessing the fullness of our brains that God has given us. And, and Jesus never said, hey, you got to follow me, but you have to check your brain at the door. Just follow me. Did you know some of the smartest people in the entire world are Christians? Smartest people in the entire world. And they certainly didn't check their brains at the door. It's a brand new book out called The Jesus Skeptic by John S. Dickinson. And what he, uh, he, he kind of entertains this idea of what is it like to be skeptical about Jesus? He was skeptical. And through his research, he found some fascinating things about what made him not become skeptical just because of true facts. Especially about people that followed Jesus and they were vocal about it. For instance, in the scientific revolution, did you know that Sir Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, and Johannes Kepler were all Christians? You can look in their private journals to be able to see how much they love Jesus. Some of the oldest and most prestigious universities, Oxford, Harvard, Yale, Cambridge, Princeton, were all founded by Christians. And if you look in their, uh, in their mottos and their, the things like that, they have Christian even scriptures within them. Even in their logos, you'll see Christian uh, symbols that are in those, logo, in those logos. How about medicine? Edward Jenner is the father of immunology. Florence Nightingale, a nursing innovator. John Hopkins, the innovator of the modern hospital. More, more recent, Francis Collins. He was the one that was the leader of the Human Genome Project, who was tasked with um, sequencing all, the entire DNA, all of DNA. He became a Christian as a result of the research that he was in. How about hospitals? The Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, UCSF, UCLA, Stanford Health, all were founded by Christian founders and their first doctors studied at Christian universities. All of this shows us that you can be smart, wicked, Yoda smart, and be a Christian. You can be curious and be a Christian. And dare I say, you can be a skeptic. Somebody that doesn't have everything figured out and be a Christian. One of the more, more famous books about this was called The Case for Christ. It was written by a man by the name of Lee Strobel. He was an atheist lawyer that worked for the Chicago Tribune. And he set out to disprove Christianity, to prove his wife wrong. And he used all of his investigative powers and his journalism and everything that he did. But as a result of his investigation, he became a Christian. And in his book, he actually wrote these words. He says, it was the evidence from science and history that prompted me to abandon my atheism and become a Christian. Now, what should jump out at you is that nowhere did it say it was the evidence from the Bible that made me become a Christian. It was evidence of science and history. So what that tells you is that questions don't lead us farther from God. They actually lead us closer to him. Which is why I want us to focus this week on the next area of discovering Jesus in Nicodemus' life. I want us to look a little bit deeper at this story and the second way that he did it by asking questions and being curious. So again, if you have your Bibles or the Crossroads Grace app, John chapter 3 is where we're going to be at. John chapter 3, let's start in verse 2 because where we left off with him, this is, this, this is what he was saying to Jesus in the middle of the night when he came to visit him. He said, Rabbi, who's Jesus, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Now, as you look very closely here, you're going to notice something. This is a statement, not a question. It's a statement, not a question. 
Nicodemus was stating what he had already concluded from his initial discovery of watching Jesus. But as any good investigator knows, behind every statement is actually a question that's waiting to come out. There's a deeper reason for someone saying what they're saying. And Jesus knew that. But, but Jesus is different than, say, my mom that, that figured out the real reason you wanted to take that purple stuffed animal to school. And she knew you wanted to give it to Sarah Kaiser, even though she told you you shouldn't hang out with Sarah Kaiser. But you knew that you loved her and wanted to marry her and was the fourth grade. That got more personal than I thought it was going to get, but, right? <laughs> so Jesus is, and God is, smarter than my mom. Okay, why? Well, he knew what Nicodemus' heart was. He knew that there was more underneath this statement that Nicodemus was making. That, that he knew that Nick was not there to flatter him. Nick was there because he wanted to know something. Wanted to know the meaning of life. He wanted to know what it took to have eternal life with God. And deep down, I think we all want to know that. Again, even if you're here and you have no relationship with God, don't have any desire to know who Jesus is, I, I still believe that deep down, you actually want to know what happens when this life is up. Even though you might say, or maybe you've heard somebody say, ah, I don't care what happens next. I'm going to live it up while I can. Or you might hear people say, well, if there is a God, I sure hope he's grading on a curve. Or, or you might hear, you know what, I may go to hell, but it's going to be one heck of a party down there. You know, that you hear people say that all the time. And I just believe that people are saying those things to cover up a deeper question of, what's really going to happen? What's really going to happen? Because frankly, if you don't wonder about that, you are way more cavalier than I am. And, and if you're young and you don't have a family and, man, the, the life is your oyster and it's ahead of you, I can understand maybe just live it up, whatever, I can get it. But that doesn't take away this nagging question inside you and me that says, what happens when this whole thing's over? What's going to happen? Deep down, Jesus knew that Nicodemus was wondering that very question, which is why this is how he responds to him in verse 3. Jesus says, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus just answered the unsaid question by Nicodemus. But his answer was not one that you could just take on face value. Nicod you know, it's, it's not like you could say, oh, hey, you want to you have eternal life with God? Oh, well, no problem. Hey, you just got to be born again. And then have Nicodemus say, oh, well, that makes sense. Hey, thanks, JC. We're going to see you later. You know, like it just doesn't happen that way. Jesus just dropped a theological bomb in Nicodemus' lap. It just dropped it right in there. He says, Nicodemus, if you want to have eternal life, you've got to be born again. So Jesus answers one of the, the question that he begged with, with this just amazing thing. But what was interesting is about the statement that he said, it begged for a question to be asked again. Which is why you read this very next thing in the next verse, in verse 4. It says, Nicodemus speaking, how can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. Jesus knew that Nicodemus would have asked this question. Why? Because it's a natural follow-up question to a statement like what Jesus made. Because if you didn't realize it, God was going to ask you to do some things that are really hard. I mean, God's going to say, hey, I want you to wait until you're married to have sex. And we're like, no, time out, time out, time out. I really love her. 
okay? I really love him. We need to know if we're compatible before we get married. We got to move in together. It's the only way we can support ourselves. So God, I don't know. Don't know if I can wait. God says, um, uh, don't put anything ahead of me in your life. And we say, whoa, 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 time out. More important than my wife or my husband or my job or my kids or my Beanie Baby collection. Like all of those things. Are, no, 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 God, we got to talk about some order stuff here because the 49ers are still in the playoffs. Like this is not going to happen, right? You get one amen for the 49ers, right? My son, he says, hey, listen, God says, you know what? My son is the only way to eternal life. Only way. We say, well, okay, hang on. There's got to be some other ways here because, hey, if you didn't know, I'm a really good person, so think God already loves me. Don't really need a son. Right? We get that. God says these things to us, and he is perfectly fine with us asking some questions. Totally fine. But here's the thing. We have to find a place where it's safe to ask those questions. But we have to find a place. Because if we don't, Satan's going to tell you, oh, don't ask him. you got to keep that inside. You say those things out loud, people are going to doubt you. And so we have to find a place where that's safe. That's why here we believe so much in community. Believe so much in finding places where it's safe to be able to ask questions. And we believe one of the greatest vehicles for that is things called growth groups. Growth groups where you can, you can be a part of a group of people where circles are more powerful than rows. Where you can sit down and say, hey, I don't know. What do you think? And you can ask questions and be together. We're, we're having signups for this right now. Growth groups are the way that we feel that you grow the strongest and the quickest with one another and with God. So we're having signups right now. And, and I know some people are starting to think, well, hey, you know, I don't know if I want to be in a growth group. I was, a gro I was in a growth group in the past. There was a guy in there. He was so annoying, you know. And this one lady, she just brought Rice Krispie treats every week. And hello, you know. Let me just ask you something. And so you walked away from growth. Let me ask you something. If you use that same logic with your doctor, you know, like if you went there and you didn't like your doctor or the nurse didn't like you or gave you a dirty look, you're like, that's it. I'm giving up modern medicine altogether. No, I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. Well, you crazy, right? You're going to find another doctor and you're going to get help, right? Or, or, or you, you might say, you know, I, I don't have time for this. Listen. You don't have time for this. You, you, you say the longings of your heart are to know who God is and to have a desire to know him and you want to ask questions, but you're like, no, I got bunko every other week, you know? Like what, like, what are we really talking about here? I'm saying, listen, give it a try. Get in groups. Ask some questions. Take her, you're saying, oh, this church is so big. I don't know where to get connected. Hey, in a group. Get, get in a group. Get connected. Get to know some people. That's where real life happens. Was praying with a group of people in the lobby right between services as, their, as one of their husbands was getting ready to go have surgery. They didn't call me to come and pray. They were praying together. I just happened to hop in. You know, that's how it happens. You, you're there for one another. So if you've been in a growth group in the past, it didn't work, try another one. If you've never been in a growth group, get in one because you have got some questions. And I think it's important to have a safe place to do that. It's in those groups. You can do it on your phone. Just sign up on your phone. You can go out in the lobby. You can do that. we got groups for couples and singles and married. You can even have one that's online where you're doing it together if you're commuting. All kinds of different ways. But do not leave here not knowing how you can get connected or how you can ask questions. Because you can do it through growth groups. Get involved. Because questions and curiosity, not a bad thing at all. God's still okay with that. And he's still okay with it with Nicodemus. Because Jesus knew that with more questions, it would allow for Jesus to give more answers. It, 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 was, it would allow for a conversation to take place. 
Questions uh, develop relationships where an open environment can be created, where there's questions and there's answers. As we discover Jesus by asking questions, we're learning a whole lot about ourselves. Because the questions that we ask are typically signposts to our heart. The, the questions that we ask are usually the ones that mean the most to us. That's why we ask things like, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God uh, put restrictions on who I can sleep with and who I can't sleep with? That's why we ask God questions about our money and why he wants some of it. That's why we ask questions about what happens when this life is over. It's because it matters to us. The deepest learnings of our heart usually surface in the form of a question. None of us, listen carefully, none of us have a soul full of absolutes. None of us. We all have questions, me included, because none of us know the answers to everything that's out there. If you really think that you have the answers to everything, you're fooling yourself. But through the life of Nicodemus, we see something. We see someone that was brave enough to ask Jesus, and Jesus was so loving that he would actually answer him. And that's why I want you to leave here with this one idea, this one idea that discovering Jesus is about asking questions that only he can answer. That when we approach God with questions, it shows that we're at least interested. That, that we're interested. And let's just be real. These questions have real emotions that are loaded within them. Pain over losing someone. Confusion over why a loved one left you. Confusion about what's, what's going on in your life. Man, a longing to not be alone anymore. But despite all of that, by asking God, we are opening ourselves up for what he might answer us. We have to get to a place where we're okay asking questions because as we discover Jesus, we need to ask things that only he can answer. But I will tell you that regardless of the question that you ask, God will oftentimes give you a very similar response. And it's the same thing that he told Nicodemus. Jesus will always tell us that we need to be born again. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born again? Because the sarcastic junior hire in all of us instantly wants to think of some really silly things when we start to hear this. That's why Nicodemus says it this way. He says, surely there you cannot enter a second time into your mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus says, you know, I haven't run her by her quite yet, but I'm pretty sure she's not going to be all that fan of a mulligan rebirth now that I'm an adult. Um, so uh, how am I supposed to be born again there, Jesus? But I think all of us know that Jesus is not talking about a physical redo birth. He's talking about something much, much deeper. I want you to listen. Jesus is saying this. In order for you to get what you want, you've got to give up what you have. I'll say it again. In order to get what you want, you're going to have to give up what you have. You, you need something that's new. And Nicodemus would have known that deep down because he was a Pharisee, super smart guy. He would have even memorized and known this scripture from Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. It says, God speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. To be born again is to leave dead things behind. Dead things like ways of thinking, ways of acting, feelings that we give into, this entitlement that we think that we deserve, preconceived notions about God and what all of our friends think as opposed to what facts tell us. The Apostle Paul would actually say it this way in Romans 12, 2. 
He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul is saying there needs to be a rebirth of our mind about how we think about what we really care about. And when we leave the dead things behind us, God is always so good to replace dead things with things that are new, with living things. And I'm not sure if there's a person in this room that can't look at a brand new baby and get all funny inside. You look at that baby and you're like, oh, Oh my goodness, it's more than just how cute they are and how well they smell and all that. There's this, there's this sense of, there's new hope. Oh, there's a few, new future that's here. There's a new life to live. And you look at it and you're like, I'll do anything I can to protect it. I want them not to experience what, they went, what I went through. I want them to live and to have a, a beautiful life because it's all new in that moment. And that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. He says, you got to be born again. He's saying some things have got to change. Dead things have got to die and living things have got to spring up. There's something I think interesting to consider. And in my research for this, I was looking at Roman adoption. So back in Rome, there was a similar adoption process. They would adopt children, but they would also adopt adults too. You're going to be adopted into a family, and most of the time it was for a leverage of power and things of that nature. But in a Roman adoption, what I found is that the adopted son would relinquish the legal status of their former family as they became part of the new one. So what that means is that they were letting go of their former life to be adopted into this new life. This is what Jesus is hoping that we will do. That we will relinquish our old life of sin and shame and doubt and, and all of those things. We would denounce it completely and then we would take on the name that is above all names in Jesus Christ. That's, that's what he's hoping that we'll do. And that's what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8 starting in verse 15. He says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Do you know who cries out, Abba, Father? Kids. Abba means daddy. He said, listen, when you're adopted into my family, you, you're brand new. You're reborn. You get a chance to be able to start anew with me. Right? It's this beautiful image. And as a good, good father in heaven, isn't it beautiful to know that that's what a good, good father does? He, he says, hey, let me grab my hand. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me help you walk. Let me, let me teach you how to do this. Let me, I, I know you want to go this way, but boy, just come this way because that, that's going to lead you to some danger. That's what a, a good, good father does. When you are brand new, you need everything. That's why curiosity is beautiful. He says, just ask me. Go ahead. Ask away. What, what are you curious about? What are you wondering about? Ask away, even the hard stuff. Ask away. Because as our Father, He wants that for us. But the only way that that can happen is if we renounce our old life and we embrace this newborn life in Him. And oh my goodness, I know it can be hard. 
Because there's some things that we hold on to in this old life that sure seem like we need them. Even if they're unhealthy. I, I don't know if I could live if I don't have my, my alcohol. I, I, I don't know if I could get past if I didn't worry all the time. I, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable letting somebody else be in control of my life because, boy, I, that's nervous. I don't know. This world tells me that I should do this myself. And so we hang on to things that are slowly killing us while Jesus says, hey, if you'll just let go, I'll give you a brand new life. You can be reborn in me. But can I also be honest with you? Just because we're reborn and we've accepted Jesus into our life doesn't mean that miraculously all the consequences of sin that we've done in our life go away. Uh, they just don't go away. I mean, if that was really true, don't you think there'd be a whole lot more Christians in the world? But it just doesn't happen. You're not going to be healthy and wealthy and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, he might bless you in certain ways, but that's not a guarantee. What you're guaranteed is that you are now reborn into an adopted family of God. You're, you're part of the name that is above all names. You will stand in front of God, spotless and blameless because of Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's what you're getting. That's the rebirth. That means more than this world could ever give you. Which is why that cross means so much. That's why this communion means so much every week. Because without it, we have no hope. But with it, we can be reborn. So in a second, there's going to be trays that will pass in front of you as we celebrate communion together. Bread in the bottom, juice in the top, those two cups that are in there. Take them both out. Hold on to them. We're going to sing together, and then we're going to worship, and we're going to, we're going to take this communion together. But I would tell you this right now. That if you're here today and you know who Jesus is, there are some things in your life that probably need a rebirth. There's some things that you probably have kept from him or have, have taken back from him somehow that need to be reborn. I would encourage you to do that. But if there's people here today that had never met Jesus before, have maybe thought of Jesus as this guy that says, you, you just believe because I tell you, and today you're understanding some new things. I just believe the Spirit's moving and you have a chance to be reborn. That there's a chance that you could say, I want to denounce this old life that is literally killing me. And I want to embrace a brand new life with Jesus. I just know it. Communion can be that time. A chance for you to know that discovering Jesus is by asking him questions that only he can answer. Ask away. When he answers, it might be time to follow. Let's take a time to pray. Father God, we simply come before you as we prepare for this time of communion to remember your son Jesus, who died on the cross in our place for our sins, was buried in a tomb for three days, defeated death, rose to then prove that to over 500 people, then ascended into heaven to prepare a place for us, did all of that for us because he loves us. And he says, I want you to be reborn. So God, I just pray right now that if there is people here that know you as Lord and Savior, Jesus, that they would just, they would reveal some things and be honest with themselves about some areas that they just need you to, to rebirth in them and that they would be truthful to you and to themselves. But I do pray that there are people here that don't know you. I know in a room this size that there are people that have been hurt by the church, have been running from God, have maybe have, have been trying to do things on their own and today they just are exhausted and they say, God, I today realize I'm a sinner. I have been doing things and saying things and thinking things that have separated me from you. And there's no way back. But today I understand, Jesus, that you have come to, to make me new. That I can renounce my old life and I can embrace the new name that you give me as forgiven. And I want that in my life. Make me reborn in you. Jesus, help us to be able to follow you now. You tell us, God, that if anybody claims your name, 
proclaims your son's name as Lord and Savior. They're a new creation. And so today is their day that they can start walking in the light. I pray that many would do that. And this communion would mean something more than just a cracker and some juice. So Father, help us now as we remember, work in this space, work in this place, our good, good Father. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. If you've discovered Jesus and this ministry has helped you follow him fully, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give through our Crossroads app or at crossroadsgrace.org give. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Now go and follow him fully.